This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, it's Al. If you told me at the beginning of this year what I'd be doing at the end of this year, hosting this podcast, reconnecting with my old creative partner, Gil Adler, working again with Gil, getting named by Entertainment Weekly, the best film podcast of 2022, I would have demanded to know what you're smoking because it's way stronger than whatever I'm smoking. In season one, we told the story of how making the horror movie Bordello of Blood was way scarier than anything in Bordello of Blood. What made making Bordello so scary was that the creative process that produced Bordello, such as it was, was entirely antithetical to the creative process that produced Making Tales was hard work, don't get me wrong, but it was a dream job. Making Bordello broke all the good things that Crip created. And that's why making it was such a fucking nightmare. Damn, if it didn't produce a ton of great stories. Hey, I'm just going along with Entertainment Weekly here. Story of how Gil and I first got crypt from season one, episode one, introduced a character our audience came to love, Joel Silver. What are we gonna do now? I need something fresh and unique that people are gonna know about it. Oh, you're a fucking moron. What's wrong with you guys? What do I got? I got two schmucks. And it introduced the strange world off to the side of our own world where Joel Silver lives. When Gil and I went aboard crypt, it was going into its third, and for all intents and purposes, its final season. The producers had gone wildly over budget season two, so Joel fired everybody. But a strange thing happened over the course of season three after Gil and I took over. Tails and the Crypt Keeper, well, they came back to life. By the time Gil and I finished producing season three, HBO had ordered two more seasons. Chris Albrecht, who I knew when he was an agent at ICM, he became the head of uh, HBO. Uh, he had a series that was uh, being shot in uh, Savannah, Georgia, called uh, Vietnam War Stories. Mm-hmm. And they, he called me up on a Sunday and, and he says to me, um, I thought he was inviting me out for brunch. But actually, he was asking me to get on a plane to go to Savannah. I thought sure. Savannah was a, was a restaurant in, in Santa Monica. <laughs> if only. Yeah. So I went, I went to Savannah. Great mimosas. Um, they Great didn't mimosas. know I was coming. He hadn't. So when I got there, it was a little awkward. Anyway, I took over the show. They had been shooting four days. They only had two days in the can. Uh, so so I, I, I shot, we shot all six episodes and I brought it in and won Ace Awards. And, you know, Chris acknowledged that I had done a good job, not only with the money, but that it looked great. And so that that's what triggered when he got into a situation with the with the partners that they, you know, had gone way over budget. He asked them to write a check and they said they wouldn't do it. And so he said, I'm going to cancel the show. And then the only way that it sort of came about was I got a call from Chris one day and he said to me, would you would you take that show over? And I said, well, I don't even know who, I don't know, I don't know these guys. I don't know the partners. I don't know, you know, I, I don't really know anything about it. And so he sent me over, I think the first six episodes to look uh, at yeah. uh, that were pretty good. Some of them were good. And, well, and Donner's, you know, Bob, Donner's first episode is amazingly good. Donner's was good. Zemeckis was good. Walter Hills was good. And so I was interested, you know, I really thought, wow, this is, and, and these were big Hollywood directors and producers. So 
from that, you know, Chris said to me, you got to go and meet with Joel Silver and Dick Donner. So I went, I went over to, I went over to, to, to meet them. And, you know, Dick stayed about 10 minutes and he said, yeah, you're okay, kid. You're okay. And he left and I was there with Joel and Joel, you know, I'm sitting in this chair, which in his office, you would sit very, very low. <laughs> he had a chair, which was sort of lower than anything, almost on the floor. Anyway, he's, he's, he's pacing in front of his desk and he's telling me, you know, you got to do this and it's got to look like a movie. It can't look like television. And, you know, you've got to shoot five pages a day, every day. There's no, no breaking down, no days off, you know, five days a week. And, and I looked at him and I sort of jokingly said, what do we do after lunch? Uh, which, which didn't, wasn't a good thing to have said because he got really pissed <laughs> off at me. So anyway, that's how we got, that's how, that's how we got to um, get Tales from the Crypt because then Joel said, looked at me and he said, all right, just make sure it looks like a movie. There was there was one more meeting, and that was yes. with Barry, Barry Josephson. Yeah, when we when we walked into that meeting at Silver Pictures and we sat in the boardroom. Yeah, uh, the meeting I think was called for like three o'clock, and three fifteen comes by, three twenty, <laughs> three twenty-five, and you are now you are your face is glued to your watch. You are the smoke. The smoke was coming out of my ears. Increasingly incredulous. Yeah. That 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 this is how that this could happen. Three thirty, three forty, three forty-five, and now you're you're beginning to say, "All right, this is it. I'm 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 going to get out of here," and and you're kind of beginning to dare yourself to come on. We're going to walk out. We're just going to walk out three fifty, three fifty-five. And Randall, really, at virtually the hour mark, literally, you, you, you've had it. This is right. a, almost an official hour of cooling <laughs> your heels at Silver Pictures. Right. No idea that this is, man, Get this is practice. And suddenly into the room, as we're literally about to walk out the door, literally into the room strolls Barry Josephson. I must give you credit, however, for me making sure that we were there that long because i i think after a half hour i was ready to just storm out of there and call hbo and say you know these guys treat people like garbage and you know i'm not yeah. interested in this <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and that and was I think never going to change and i think you were the one who maybe you know injected the kool-aid into my arm to calm down simmer down and let's 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 play this one out oh well this was so no, you, you i think you this were, was this was rarefied air for me yeah. i'm now I'm, I'm on the Warner Brothers lot. Now, I had we had worked together on a couple of episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. Right. But that was not this. Now we're, we're talking about a show at HBO. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, once Barry signs off, this is, this is a happening deal. This is really the last step. It, it, right. And to me, I can taste, I can taste the promise. I can see it. I'm Moses. And I'm like, Oh, uh, screw what God says. I'm, I'm right. I'm going there motherfuckers. And well, I'm, I'm not exempt from being an asshole at times. You know, I'm, I, I can do but, that, but, but you, you were know, the one, you were the one who calmed me down and said, no, no, let's just, let's just stick this out. Let's see what happens. The saving grace. The thing that calmed me down that, that kept my spirit going is they had the whole collection of all the tales from the crypt that, uh, Oh, the weird tales. Every, Every comic yeah. in the entire EC collection was there, yeah, yeah. was there. And, and that was what kept me really because 
I would pull down all you know the the tales from the crypt, and I think, wow. Right. I mean, to me, you know, I read those comic books when I was a kid. I loved the EC world. I loved yeah. Bill Gaines's world. I this was close to to a kind of a dream. My first encounter with tales from the crypt was uh, a couple years was a year before. Yeah, it was just after their first season. I, I was unemployed as as usual, and I, uh, I I got to be a cable ace judge. And, and we judged uh, uh, writing. We had, uh, I got like a dozen things we were going to judge for writing for the Cable Ace Awards. And uh, it was a bunch of things that looked, okay, interesting. And the first three things we were going to watch were three episodes of Tales from the Crypt. The first three episodes, uh, Donner's, Zemeckis's, and Walter Hill's. And yeah. the, the dozen or so writers, who uh, unemployed writers, who were there in the room, we all saw we were going to be watching it, three episodes of Tales from the Crypt, and collectively, at mo- we all said out loud, oh, there's an hour and a half of, of, of time you won't get back. We all anticipated crap. And from the moment Donner's episode began rolling, it was the first one that they showed us, dig this cat, he's real gone. You could hear every writer's mind turning over going, get my fucking ass on this show. Right. This is brilliant. Yeah. And so to be standing in, in, in the boardroom at Silver Pictures right. <laughs> with this promised land in sight, my friend, you would have I would have been clutched to your ankle. Really, <laughs> I would have tackled you. There was. But that said, as the hour mark came, yes, you had me. It looked like we were being humiliated well, as we walked out. Barry Josephson walked in. And the meeting if I remember went, if I remember correctly, um, you may have threatened clutching onto something even more important than my ankle if I tried to get out of the room. <laughs> Entirely possible. Entirely possible. But, you know, the, the, my recollection of, of the meeting with Barry was it lasted like five minutes and he looked yeah. at us and he went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. OK. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But which, it, was, right? which, was how, which is why it was so ludicrous. It was so typical. It was really just right. it was the pure politics of Barry having to sign off. But but Barry yeah. is above all a political creature. Yeah, and he turned out to be a really good guy for the most part while yeah, while yeah, we were yeah. working on that show and thereafter. Yeah, 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 hey, you know, this town this town attracts a certain kind of person. You cannot be surprised when that kind of people are who really operates in this town and operates successfully. It's not it's not a business for 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 shy retiring types. Right. It it just it just ain't. You're not going to do well if you yeah. come if you try to if you try to do this. It it requires a certain mindset and and hey if if barry is kind of running joel silver's company you got to figure barry's going to have an awful lot of joel in him yeah and that well, was and, and actual everyone fact, who worked for joel in actual fact i found barry really uh, very reasonable hmm. um and as we worked more and more together i i quite liked him i, I found him to be you know very helpful, you know, for getting politically what we needed to get when we needed yeah, to get yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, you know, I, I thought he, I thought uh, ultimately, you know, our, our being pissed at him for being so tardy and keeping us waiting, you know, it, it turned out to be he was a good guy. Joel was, yeah. cr- was brutal to Barry, brutal. But he, he, but he was brutal to every, he was brutal to everybody. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I remember going in. I remember going into his office occasionally and thinking, you know, okay, what's this? You know, what, what, why did he call me? Only to get, you know, creamed from him and screamed at from him for something that I didn't even know what I was, what, what, how, how am I related to this? What did I do yeah. with this? But that's, that, that was the relationship. I was, I was the ad along that, that, you know, that nobody wanted. And rightfully so, because I, I had no bona fides 
to do the job that I did on credit. It was really because they wanted you and, and, and I, was, I was your writing partner. But I had a secret weapon. That secret weapon was you. Oh. You know, because I felt like th- we could do this. You know, I don't think I could do this alone. You know, I was never good at writing alone. I would look at the computer screen and I could think of, you know, maybe I should ba- balance my checkbook today. I just everything, you know, that, but when, but somehow working with you, it just all clicked for me. And so I really felt like we could really fix this. We could, we really know how to do this and we can do it not only economically, but creatively. Let's stop here a second to, to pat ourselves on the back. When we went aboard Tales from the Crypt, the intention was that third season was the last season they were going to do. That was the end of Tales from the Crypt. Right. And we reinvigorated not only the franchise, but the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Which reinvigorated the franchise as a whole. And the fact that there were an order for three feature films, two of which got made, yeah. was simply because of what re- we, what you and I reinvented over the course of that first season that, that we took over Tales from the Crypt. I think one of the highlights of our career, certainly my career, was um, you know when we wrote Yellow uh, that Bob was going to direct and he got Kirk Douglas to do it. And you know but, meeting but, Kirk and being on the set every day with Bob. The problem was he, didn't, he couldn't get Kirk initially because the initial script that, that the, the Thomas brothers wrote for Yellow, right. you know, originally... The way that I think everyone was planning it, Yellow was going to be the last episode ever of Tales from the Crypt. It was going to be the big send-off. Right, right. Which, when in the middle of the season, suddenly it was, it was decided that, no, no, HBO is going to order a couple more seasons. It wasn't the end of the show. It was, it was kind of a celebration because it was going to go on. The problem was uh, uh, Zemeckis wanted to, to, he wanted to pay an homage to one of his favorite films when he was a, a film student, uh, Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Right. And that's why he wanted uh, Kirk Douglas. It's a World War One story. And he wanted Kirk Douglas. Uh, the problem was the script that the Thomas brothers, you know, th- those two feature guys wrote, wrote was just abominable. It was awful. And, and Zemeckis knew he could not possibly get uh, he couldn't even send it to to uh, yeah. the agency because it was just sucked so bad. So, you know, we took it under our wing. We fixed it. And you know, one or two drafts later, suddenly we had Kirk Douglas. Bob became a fan. And then watching Bob Zemeckis create World War One in Simi Valley. <laughs> and and he's and he's directing our words. Right. You know, Bob Zemeckis is directing our words. Yeah. You know, we've kind of gone from one place to another in one giant leap. Yeah. This is you know. When you're on the inside, it's funny, one, one tends to take certain things for granted after a while. But having spent a lot of time now on the outside of the whole thing, when I look back, I, I think, dude, did you not realize what, right. what you were experiencing? Yeah, really? no, it was special. It was special. I, oh, my God. I think back on it often and, 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 and try to remember some of the lessons I learned during that whole process, because that it was a very special time. It was a very special time working, the two of us working together, but it was also a very special time, how big it got and how, you know, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. Not in terms uh, no, of money, but, not in terms of bigger budgets, but just mm-hmm. bigger, uh, the show became bigger. We suddenly, God, we, we were getting, we, we got reviewed when, uh, God, after our, when we did our, our second season on the show, the show's fourth, 
I remember when we got the reviews came out and the reviews were, were really positive. I think uh, this, that second season, uh, we had Billy Friedkin directed for us, John right. Frankenheimer directed for us and working with Billy was, was a hoot. And that was important because Billy would, would play a small part in the story that we were about to tell about, about Bordello of Blood. Billy did a, a terrific episode about uh, the rock and roll world, about you know, kind of garage bands. Yeah. When we first suggested Billy, because it was our idea. And yeah. Joel, Joel went to you. He said, are you out of your fucking mind? Billy's crazy. He's going to fucking kill you. He was like, well, who am I talking to here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, well, what? No, what? Pretty good impression, too. It was pretty accurate. Uh, so, you know, but you, you, the first time that, that Billy came in, you sat him down and, and you read, you, you explained the rules that, you know, hey, this is well, it was, five it days was of actually, prep, five days to shoot. I don't care if you're Billy Friedkin. You're not getting a moment more. That's what you told him. Yeah. Well, well, people have said, you know, um, I think before I met him, people had said to me, you better be careful because he can be pretty hot. And, you know, if you if you if you piss him off the wrong way, he might take a shot. at You You mean a punch? Yeah. Well, he might just punch you in the nose. Yeah, and I was yeah, like, yeah. what? So I met him at Hugo's for breakfast and we sat there and I was like, I had this whole thing in my head. Look, you know, I don't care who you are. Bob Zemeckis does them in five days. Dick Donner does them in five days. We do them in five days. Alan and I won't give you a script. That's a six day script and say it's your problem. We'll fix it until we all agree it's five days. And we won't let you go ahead unless it's five, unless you agree it's five days. And if you think you're going to, on day three or day four, you know, screw us for another half a day or day, I'll fire you. I'll fire you on the spot and I'll finish it. Alan will finish it. Zemeckis will, someone will finish it. And I remember as I'm sitting here at Hugo's and I'm leaning further and further over the table across to him. And I'm, I'm real. And I'm realizing I'm getting a little bit emotional about this and how heated. And I'm going, holy shit, he he's going to take a shot at me. <laughs> he's going to get and he leans over meeting me. It's almost like a Seinfeld. He, he leans over almost my head's matching, almost touching. And he goes, do you have any idea who the fuck you're talking to? And I thought, oh, shit, here comes the punch <laughs> right in my face. I'm going to have a black eye. And then, and then I pulled back because I was afraid I was going to get hit. And then he pulled back and he, and he looks at me and he goes, I'm telling you right now, when we agree that it's five days, I will do it in five days. I will not do it any more time than that. As long as we agree up front. And I said, I wouldn't ask you to do anything other. And went back and Joel said to me, so how'd it go? Billy, Billy you got rid of him, right? And I went, no, he's doing it. You stupid motherfucker. You're an idiot. You, you're going you're gonna to pay for all the overages because there are going to be plenty of overages. And, you know, we became, actually, I became really good friends with Billy thereafter. And uh, he did it in five days, as he promised. And it was a great episode. Reinventing the series was one thing. We went back to the EC Comics for inspiration. But reinventing the Crypt Keeper, well, that was something else entirely. The Crypt Keeper in the EC Comics is not the Crypt Keeper in the TV series. They're two completely different, unconnected pieces of intellectual property. Bill Gaines's family owns Tales from the Crypt. Joel, on the other hand, owns the Crypt Keeper. And so long as Bill Gaines's family remains angry with Joel, which they are, Tales from the Crypt and the Crypt Keeper will remain divorced. Sorry, kids. In episode one of our second season, we had a, a conversation that had never been had before between the four people responsible for creating the Crypt Keeper. 
Crypt Keepers don't just fall from the sky fully formed, you know. It took Kevin Yeager to construct him, John Kassir to give him his voice, me to craft his character via his words, and Gil to direct and produce the whole thing. The conversation that Kevin, John, Gil, and I had here was the very first time that the four of us had ever talked about our roles in creating this iconic character. In this clip, John and Kevin tell the story of how John got the Crypt Keeper gig to begin with. Got a call from my agent saying, listen, they want you to come audition for Tales from the Crypt. And I was like, oh my God, they're making that into a series. I had collected the comic books as a kid. I couldn't believe it. You know, I used to have to hide those comic books from my mother. I'd put them in my Casper comics, you know, because they were like, oh, it costs <laughs> delinquency, you know. Of course. It's so funny. I, I tell people to, you know, watch our behind the screams, you know, in the DVD set and, you know, about how bizarre it was that those comic books were, you know, pre-code were so, um, you know, scandalous. And, they were subversive. Uh, they, they were genuinely subversive. That, and that's why they were great. Juvenile delinquency. So um, I was like, yeah, I want to go down and audition. And then when I found out I get to go down to Kevin Yeager's studio to audition, I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. I remember walking into the studio and just, you know, nobody stopped me. Nobody went like, what are you doing here? And I just kept walking around looking at all this stuff because Kevin was in the back, um, you know, recording people on a boom box, as I remember, with like a little lav. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop you for one second, John, because you're, you're about to get into, into, into prime territory and we'll never go back to, to. Okay, great. I wanted, to, I wanted to just talk a little Baltimore before you got full Crip Keeper. You got it. Because we both come from Baltimore. Oh, how did I not know that? I, I, I don't know that we ever talked about it before. Are you embarrassed but to be from Baltimore? I, well, hey, you know, I, I, I moved to New York first and then I moved as far away from it as I could. I would have moved further, but I ran out of real estate. I uh, came from a really good part of Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, good for you. I love Baltimore. Go uh, on. Yeah. I, I, Go on, I, Edgar Allan Poe. Come on. Uh, so, so you still have a good relationship with, with, with Baltimore. Yeah, my family's all still back there. My dad's ninety-eight years old. Hmm. My mom's you, ninety-two. Wow. You went to you went to Lock Raven High. Did, did, did they live? You live out out in, in that part of uh, yeah, by their the Lock county? Raven Reservoir, and uh -huh. um, you I know, that's a nice part of Baltimore. Yeah, it must, it's very county, cool. Yeah. You know, a lot of people didn't even know Lock Raven was you know named after Raven. You know, the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. They were like, oh, it must be because there's a lot of ravens around the reservoir. It's like, no. Yeah. Well, the reservoir the, was named after the Edgar Allan Poe, you know, story of the raven. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it was kind of a dark place to grow up. We used to have, um, we used to have something called uh, Twilight Movie. And it'd be at like four o'clock in the afternoon. I have done my homework. My mom was making dinner. We had five kids in my family. Channel 13. It was, was WJZ. There you go. And you I, know, I watched that too. Keep going. Keep it was going. Great. Well, you know, it would have everything from like Doris Day movies to, you know, Attack of the 50 Foot Woman, Moth to the Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers, Marx WC Fields. You know, and then they would also have all that, all the Universal Horror Monster movies and the Roger Corman stuff like Tingler yep. and yep. House yep. of yep. Wax and, mm. um, you know, uh, The Fly and that kind of thing. And so that was what everything that I loved. I couldn't believe that. 
you know, all the stuff that I loved growing up was the kind of thing that I was getting auditioned for, you know, so it's, it was kind of fitting, you know. And so suddenly there you are. Now you're in Kevin's studio walking around <laughs> and you're about to audition for this thing now. So you had seen. All right. So I, it was was the Crypt Keepers the face as we know him was that finished by the time you, you know you there were, were different ver- there were different versions of it as i remember you know kevin had on one of his <clears throat> on one of his uh you know tabletop benches that he was working on and they were all similar at that point but uh, you know kevin had later showed me some other sketches and some of his um you know uh clay figurines that he had sculpted but uh i think that most of them there was one that had a nose but i think the other two had no noses you can correct me if i'm wrong kevin no that's right this is what i remember and um but they you know i generally got the picture of you know the the rotting flesh and the uh you know and it was funny because there were a couple of other actors in there preparing to audition for Kevin and they were I remember them looking at the scripts Kevin and going be careful what, <laughs> be careful what you a- ask for this is terrible they're like what is this shit yeah, yeah. and I could see them trying to be really scary and mean and all this stuff I'm like you guys don't get this this is fucking Shakespeare yeah. to this guy you know yeah, 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 and I'm yeah, going okay yeah. you got you know the Alfred Hitchcock style of punning and you've got the you know and then of course you know I had been doing the Wizard of Oz in my act and I was like you know I'll throw on the Margaret Hamilton laugh and all this stuff <laughs> And I go and I can see Kevin when I get into Kevin's little back area where he's recording people, I could see that he's like been sitting there for hours going, (laughs) what you do, one more actor, dude. Yeah, I got to hear one more fucking version of something that doesn't work. And I start doing this for him. Hello, kitties. (laughs) And he starts, he goes like this. He's pointing at me going, like this, you know, keep going in that direction, you know, and I'm laughing at him, laughing at me, and I'm going, oh, this is perfect. The Crypt Keeper laughs at his own jokes. This is perfect, you know, and I start doing it for him, and that's mostly what I remember about that, about how, like, I was like, oh, good, he liked it, you know. Of course, I'm sitting there thinking, it's it's HBO. Nobody's got HBO yet. Hardly anybody has HBO. Nobody's going to see this. I'm already on an HBO series. I think Nobody it was the first TV it. series, too, that HBO was doing, I think. Well, I had been on First and Ten, and then oh. also some Dream yeah, On. Brian Benben's show. Okay. Yeah, Dream On. I had I was recurring but, on Dream On. But, but, but so, those were TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. This was this was like the anthology series. I mean, it, it there's a great story that you probably guys all know about how like when they showed these in the theater as a you know cast and crew screening and a promotional thing, that there was some guys sitting in front of me that were like crew guys or something, and they're like, "Oh my God, this is great TV!" And one the other guy goes, "It's not TV, it's HBO." And the two you know the two execs look at each other like oh we're stealing that Uh, and they did you know it was like it was amazing but um you know kevin i got a call they said you know kevin really liked you wants you to go you know um see joel silver and richard donner and i had to drive all the way out into the corner of you know the end of radford wherever that hits you know like by the santa monica i mean you know the the mojave desert somewhere i don't know where you guys were but they were in some little trailer that was all like fake paneling and i did it for them and they were like great we'll see you on the set and i was like 
oh my God, it's got to be the easiest thing that I ever got. <laughs> well, you, you deserved it. I, I, oh, I, thank I, you. The, the deal I made with Joel was about directing and writing. So he said that, you know, you can eventually do this, that Bob Zemeckis was going to be the one to audition and, and do everything. But he goes off and he was working on, I think, two or three of Back to the Future. I can't remember. He became unavailable. But they, they always said, you can, you can run it. And you know it was? I think they were frightened of puppets. I think that's the overall scared them. So they go, can you do handle this? I said, sure, sure. You know, and I, and I, you know, we had uh, Rick Overton. You remember Rick Overton? Yes. Stand -up comedian. Good for sure. Uh, Michael Winslow came in, you know, the, the guy that does all the things from uh, police Academy and, and they did at least, uh, yeah, Academy. And they did, you know, nice auditions, but I got to tell you that what happened was, and what I'd had everybody do is come look at the Crypt Keeper so that they could have a visual, right? And you know, like you said, the rotting throat and all that, and told told them what I was doing. Not sure if the nose is going to stay or not. All that stuff. So that's <laughs> right on with what John was saying. And then I had them first go back with a casting director, and and just read the lines without me being in the room because I didn't want to first hear it without with, with seeing John's face. I wanted to you know imagine the crypt keeper and and you know match that up without seeing that. So that's what I did with everybody. And I remember Michael Winslow came out and he was very. Very cocky. He, he and not, I don't mean in a bad way. He was just kind of like, yeah, I just gave you the crypt keeper. He was like, he said, you know, don't you don't have to look at anybody else. It was that kind of attitude. Sure. And, and he he just wasn't right at all. I mean, it was like he did things that were I couldn't even understand him. But what got me about John when he came in and, and he so he did the audition first. I mean, he laid it down on tape. It was just cassette tape, you know, back then. I went in and listened to to it. And then I think I remember pulling him back in to have him doing it again in front of me. And that's what I think what he's saying. Like yeah. the reaction was seeing him. I didn't remember. I didn't remember that. I couldn't part. believe that. I couldn't believe that voice came out of this nice guy, you know, this, this, this normal looking guy. And I, I wanted to see it for real. Like, what, what is that voice? Come? And then what got me, the, the, what killed it was the laugh. I mean, and, and I was, my, my assignment was to bring in, Three voices out of all the, they sent me, I don't know, 20 people or so, and almost mostly stand up comedians like John. And so they said, just pick three and we'll, we'll all decide together. And so I walked in, and this is no lie, I walked in with one tape and it was yours. And I wow. gave it to Joel. I went into his office and I sat, we had this little console on the side of his desk. And, you know, we both pulled up chairs and he popped it in. He, you know, he's like, he was like a kid. He just loved this stuff. And he was just real close to the, to the speaker. And I said, I don't care what you say. I don't, you know, you can go look at other people. I'm not interested. I said, this guy is it. The voice is it. The laugh is incredible. You're, I've looked at 20 guys. They don't even hold a candle. And I'm not just blowing smoke up. Oh, thanks. You're, you're Heine. I mean, I'm telling you, this was, <laughs> you, blew, you blew me out of the water. And, and to this day, it's like that voice is just the classic voice with the character because that's, that's how great it is. So I, I said, here it is. That's it. That's all I have to say. And so then he said, well, I'll call him and have him come in. And that's, I think you went out to meet them. I wasn't there, but you went out to meet Joel and, and then Donner. Yeah. But I already said, I'm not doing, I was basically saying I'm not doing, I'm not kidding. I said, I'm not interested. This guy, this guy has, every, and, and as soon as Joel heard it, he just a huge smile on his face and, and he was shaking his head, you know, doing all that stuff. So I knew you were in at that point, but they had to make sure that at least one of the <laughs> executives had signed off on it too. And that was good. That's awesome. So, and that was, that was what I remember, you know, about, about the whole you know process and, and, uh, and finding John. And I would, that was so, so happy because what happens and you, you know, you guys all know this auditioning people, you got to look at me. You just want the person to walk in and give you the character. 
You know, you just want them to say, here's your lead character, right? And that's what John did. You know, he walked in and it was just like, oh my God. It's, it's like, like buying a house. You, you, voice. It's like buying a house. You, you know, within a matter yes. of seconds, yes. this is it, or yep. there's a fatal flaw here. Yeah, absolutely. So that, I mean, it was just, that, that's, I was so happy when he left. I can't, I'm smiling that. I, I was so happy when he left because it was just like, this is the guy. They're not going to argue with me. I know they won't. And I, I think that gave me the confidence to walk in and, because, you know, as we all know, it's hard to, to tell Joel yeah. what to do. Yeah. But but he but I just had confidence because I knew that they would say they wouldn't say no. You know, it's, it's amazing because you, you know, very often and back then I had been auditioning for, you know, major pilots and stuff like that. You know, here I was on a series, but it was HBO, which was easier to get. I mean, yeah. I think I was supposed to do two episodes and they laughed the whole time I worked and I wound up on it six years. Yeah. But it was but, you know, first in 10. But. You know, the rest of the stuff, I mean, they they make a contract with you where you're like, you're going to get paid $25,000 a week if you get it, and you get nothing if you don't. Yes. And then you have to go be funny in the room. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit. You know, and I was thinking, okay, this is this is HBO. You know, maybe people won't even see it. And it's something I loved as a kid. And I'm just going to make this as fun as it is. And I already knew that I had just, if I had walked out of Kevin's studio and had a lot of fun with Kevin, that was all I cared about. You know, got to see some of his stuff on the wall and all that stuff. And, you know, so in in some ways it became like the easiest thing that I ever got because I just, because it was. It was also a one audition thing, basically. It wasn't, you had to go back and do it, have callbacks. That's it. That, That was it. The big irony here is that although Kevin, John, Gill, and I did the actual work of creating the Crypt Keeper, none of us owns a bit of them. Like I said, Joel Silver does. And that brings us back to Joel and Joel's stories. In Season 1, Episode 3, we told the story of a car ride with Joel and how, during that car ride, we almost hired an actor named Donald Trump. Here's something either I didn't know or forgot about. Before we cast Angie to play our villain... Another surprising name came up. Marla Maples was in the uh, mix. Was she really? Oh, my God. Was she really? And I, you know. Um, was, she, was she with Trump at that time? I'm not sure. I can't remember. A quick digression. Hearing the name Marla Maples brought back the memory of another conversation, one Gil and I overheard while we were driving to Beverly Hills with Joel one afternoon in our early crypt years. That whole drive is a story unto itself. But as we went along, Joel took a call from Donald Trump. I don't remember what the point of the call was, but at the very end of it, Joel referenced the fact that Gil and I, Tales from the Crypt's producers, were in the car with him. You should do an episode, said Joel. I'd love to, said Trump. Send me a script. Just for the record, we never sent him a script. Of all the crazy stories we told about Joel, probably the craziest was the one where he went from Seattle, where he was executive producing the film Assassins, to Vancouver, where we were making Bordello. That's across an international border without a single piece of personal identification. All these years later, I still can't quite believe that it happened. It it really was that bizarre, but it happened. Did you know Joel was coming that day? Let's start there. Well, I guess the true answer is no. I had no idea that he was coming, but it was probably my own fault that he came because I kept saying to him, Joel, you know, I don't understand. You're, you're in Seattle with Stallone and Dick Donner. Dick Donner is an established director. I'm not. This is my first movie. Yet you choose to be in Washington 
in Seattle with Stallone. I can't believe that. And with Donner. He goes, what are you talking about? You've directed Tales from the Crypt and you've directed this and I trust you and you know what you're doing. And I, I know, Joel, but it would mean a lot to me if you can, you know, you come up here. He goes, okay, I'll come up. I'll come up. I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there. And I'll go, yeah, when are you going to get there? You'll always have an excuse not to get here. I think you should come up. I think it would mean a lot to me if you came up. I think it would mean a lot to see you on the set and for the crew, for the cast and everybody. You so really? I, yeah. And I really wanted him to come oh up. So I could have. God. No, but I really wanted him to come up so I could, personally, I could have a conversation with him about replacing Dennis. I did not know that. I real, that's what I really wanted. Because this was the first day, right? Did you have, a, some, did you have something in, in your pocket in terms of who, who we would, now that we're shooting? Uh, not, I, I think I did then, but I can't remember who it might have been. And it probably was somebody that it, it was in the family. It was either someone who did tales with us mm-hmm. or someone that had worked with Joel, somebody that we could call yeah, home. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, there, there, there were plenty of people who, who, yeah. uh, who certainly would have been, could have been better than Dennis. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so I'm, I'm shooting, I'm working. And, you know, I figured it f- fell on deaf ears. And now we're shooting on the you know, first day. The phone rings. And they tell me it's Joel. And I go, uh, tell him I can't talk to him. I'm directing a movie. So they hang up. And five minutes later, the phone rings. It's Joel. He's got to talk to you. So I go, okay. I go, Joel, I'm directing a movie. I can't really talk to you while I'm directing a movie. Does Dick, you know, you're standing there. So in between shots, he can talk to you. I'm a first time director. I don't have the time or the inclination. I got to, I got to concentrate on what I'm doing. What do you want? And he goes, I just want to tell you, I'm coming to visit. When? Today. Today? What do you mean today? I'm coming up to see you today, but there's a problem. I said, what's the problem? I've left. I'm on the plane already. I don't have my passport. I go, well, Joel, then turn around and come tomorrow because you can't cross the border without a passport. You can't get into any country without a passport. He goes, no, no, no. You need to call Canada and tell them I'm coming and tell them to let me in. I seriously remember Gil handing me the cell phone, covering it like this and saying, Joel says we have to call Canada. Who in Canada are we supposed to call? <laughs> I mean, I was like, well, I mean, he right these moments. He said, he said, Gil, you told me who <laughs> in Canada are we supposed to call? <laughs> and then you got back on the phone. Right. And so I go, Joel, there's nobody, there's no Canada to call. There's, no, there's nobody. There's no Canada. There's immigration. Immigration won't let you into the country. It's really that simple. Just go back, get your passport and come tomorrow or, or in a few days. No, no, no. I'm already in the air. I'm, I'm on my way. I'll be landing in about 25 minutes. Just call Canada and tell them to let me in. I go, and again, <laughs> I, I say the same thing. And he goes, well, if they don't let me in, I'm going to pull the movie. Tell them I'm spending millions of dollars on this production. And if they don't let me in, I'm going to pull the movie out of there. And I go, Joel, they don't care about our movie. They don't care how much we're spending or how much we're not spending. They're there to protect the borders. You know, they, they represent the country. I, and I said, look, I can't take care. I can't call anybody. I'm busy shooting. I, I can't do this. And I think we hung and up. And then he called me. <laughs> <laughs> and did the same thing with me that you, he had just said with you. Literally, the exact same stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, It didn't work with him. Maybe it'll work with you. And I, I went back to the office. And <clears throat> somehow Colleen had found out. And at that point, Colleen is almost running down the hallway saying, Joel Silver's coming. Joel Silver's coming. We don't have any grape Snapple. Grape Snapple? Because <laughs> somebody had told her that he would always insisted on having grape Snapple. I'm sure glad that didn't make its way to the set. 
Is that true? I I I I didn't. Is, is, was was Joel a, a grape snapple guy? Oh my God! In London, you don't remember in London? I sent Glenn out for a day and a half to find good grape snapple before Joel showed up, and he couldn't find it. He was gone a day and a half, and he finally found it like in East London somewhere and brought back the whole case. <laughs> I, you know, I have. This Glenn is, loves telling that story because uh, he, he, he finally found it at a at a at a uh, a train um, one of those little bodegas they have at the train stations. Yeah, oh and he God. goes, "You have grape snapple?" And the guy said, "Yeah, how much you want?" And Glenn said, "All of it." <laughs> when he when he arrived at Vancouver Airport without any identification, he didn't even have a driver's license. Right, nothing. And the pajamas, our first AD on uh, Bordello was named Lee Knipperberg. And Lee, Lee's nickname for Joel was the Pajaminator. <laughs> or be, because he was Canadian, he said the Pajaminator. So, right. so now Joel lands at the Vancouver International Airport in a, in a private plane. Because it, it, it was, he didn't-, he didn't Not the one that he was supposed to be, not the one that we had the information on the travel memo and that we'd assigned the driver to. Okay, so 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 he's changed. He's he's landing on a different plane than we expect. He lands at the airport, and when he approaches Canadian customs, they say papers, and his response is, "Don't you know who I am?" To which well, he didn't. He didn't even have a driver's license. No, he didn't nothing, have anything. Nothing. And so I, of course, I'm the I'm I get the call, and because uh, I deal with the border regularly as part of the, part of the job, and. Uh, they anyhow the the punchline was he made their lives a living hell and they just asked me Colleen will you vouch for him and that's how we got him into the country. Wow, you know I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah, it was it was Colleen did that entirely on her say so that she got Joel into the country, and so Joel gets into the van, and you know there was a plan they they we wanted to show the boss. You know what we were doing, and so the first stop wasn't location; it was to show him our our great production facility. And from the moment he got out of the van, he was he was a pit bull on a. Tear. Nothing was good enough. He had it, it, nothing was good enough. Everything was bad. He even hated the fact that you know my my production company was called New City Productions, and it had a a sign which was actually the lands the, the skyline of Vancouver was the logo. And he was like, tear that down, um, do this. Do. He just walked through like a, like a wrecking ball through the, and, and that was a big place. I, I've been prepared to take him for a, uh, you know, a walk around the studio. We had about 90,000 square feet, as you recall, and we had sets built all over it. And so, you know, my original plan was when the executive producer arrives, we'll give him the tour of the facilities and, and go through the whole spiel. Um, but he Late just plans. wasn't full on. I'm, you might have prepared us. I got a call from my assistant and she said, you better get over here right now. Everyone's quitting. And I went there and Joel went through there like, like really like, like the Tasmanian devil. And our entire production staff were female and he had really, and Canadian, you know, so they're really nice people on top of that. And, and Joel, literally they were, there were some of our staff who were literally in the parking lot about to get into their cars when I got there and I begged them to stay and they were crazy enough to listen to me and they stayed. I don't know what I promised them that in no way could I deliver, but they stayed. And by the, 
yeah, and then when I finally got to location, Joel was there and, and, and he was hanging with you and it was like nothing happened. Well, it wasn't like nothing happened. He, he, when he came onto the set, he was like, you know, he was, he was ready to give it to me too. Oh, and sure, he did. Sure. And he did. And we had a, you know, we had a bit of a to do um, actually in front of everybody, which I don't like doing. Hmm. And, but I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to let him roll over me. Hmm. Um, but what and, I mean, it didn't mean anything to him that he had just really, he had, he had hurt, he had really hurt the morale of our office, our no, support the, staff. Yeah. went from from you know whatever they thought of us before that moment they the whole way they thought of us changed in that moment yeah be, because of the way the joel blew through there yeah and there wasn't much we could do to fix it to explain it yeah uh i think we and, just finished day one <laughs> yeah 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 and it was yes and, and it was a remarkable experience, but that was day three of our shoot. And, and, and we got to the end of it and it was exhausting. And, and, oh, yeah. and Joel had changed the whole, really the, the whole crew didn't look at us quite the same way anymore. In fact, the crew was already angry at us because Dennis, Dennis, the schedule was, was going to make us change, uh, flop our weekends. We were going to yeah. flip our weekends mm -hmm. from, from, you know, cause Dennis rehearsed Monday on Thursday, Thursday, shot on Friday. So, yeah. So that became our weekend and, and our Monday was Saturday and our yeah. Canadian crew, they, that's not the deal they made. Yeah. And it was on, again, it was Colleen went to the mattresses for, uh, you know, she put her reputation on the line and said, look, do this for me. Because that's not the deal her crew made. They, uh, Americans, we, we live to work. They work to live. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time, by the time Dennis arrived and that by the time Joel arrived on our set, strangely, all the good feelings from the weekend on, well, Friday, by the time I got to Saturday, it was already a mess. One of my personal favorite stories from season one was a story I'd never heard before doing the podcast. Gil told it about how HBO ordered the show Perversions of Science, the sci-fi anthology show that was supposed to replace Tales from the Crypt. Now, I never made it onto Perversions, and Perversions never got past its first season. Perversely, the fix was always in for Perversions. Its origin story was its fate. Joel called me one day and he said, you gotta go, you gotta go have lunch with Bob. So you guys talk, talk and, and come up with a show. So I called Bob and Bob was over at Universal. I said, listen, Bob, I, you know, I don't know what to tell Joel. I, 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 what, what are we going to do? And he said, I'll tell you what, just come on over. I'll get deli from Jerry's. I'll get chocolate chip cookies. We both like that. And we'll have lunch and we'll talk. And then I'll call Joel and I'll say, we had a nice talk, but we, we didn't come up with anything. I said, great. That's good. Okay, let's do that. So I go over, have lunch with Bob. And while we're talking, you know, we're talking about our youth and what we liked and what we didn't like. And I was saying like, well, you know, I, I kind of liked Outer Limits, like the gallery. Uh, I gallery. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he said, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he said, I like, I like this and that. And I said, yeah, yeah. And why do, why do we like that? Why did we like that as kids? I said, well, you know, it was, it was different. It was weird. It was quirky. It was, you know, wasn't it, it was unexpected. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt the same way. And so we finished our lunch. We finish our cookies and I go, okay, Bob, I'm going to go. Don't forget to call Joel. And he goes, no, no, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. So I go home and that night about eight 30 in the evening, the phone rings and it's Joel. And he goes, what the fuck is the matter with you? I go, what, 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 what did I do now? He goes, why don't you tell me what's going on? And I go, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, 
I got off the phone with Bob and I had to call Bob. He didn't call me. And I had to say, what happened to you and Gil? And he said, well, I want Gil to tell you. So tell me what it is. So I go, what? What, what are you talking about? And he goes, tell me the idea. Bob said, you had a really good idea. Tell me the idea. So I go, well, Joel, we, we had a few of them. So let me check with Bob and I'll call you back. Let me just call Bob. And I call Bob and I go, Bob, are you out of your mind? I got Joel calling me, asking me, what's the idea? What? We don't have an idea. There is no idea. And he, and he starts to laugh and he goes, well, why don't you tell him, you know, it was like what we said about our youth. We like this and we like that. It was twisted. It was this and that. And, and, and it was funny, but it was scary. And then you say, you, you will work. We're working on it. And, and then he'll leave, he'll leave us alone. So I go, Bob, I thought you were going to talk to him. Just, just, just call him back. Call him back. So I call up Joel and I tell him, and there's a silence after I speak. And he goes, I love it. I love it. Let's do it. What do you mean? He goes, I'm going to call Chris Albrecht and set up a meeting for you, me, and Bob. And I'm going, Joel, 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 click. I call Bob back. Bob goes, don't worry about it. It'll go nowhere. It'll, it'll die. Two days later, I get a call from Joel. You, Bob, and I have a meeting with Chris Albrecht at uh, HBO to pitch this new show. And I go, Bob, there's no show. You, you and I know there's no show. So how are we going to pitch? So he goes, Chris has always been a big fan of yours. He'll understand what you're saying. He'll see that there's no show. And he'll probably say, you know, we should work on it some more and come back. Don't worry about it. So now we go over to Chris Albrecht's office and it's the three of us. And, you know, Chris is waiting for someone to start the meeting. And so they go, you know, tell him. I go, tell him. Yeah, Bob, tell him, tell him. So I go, well, you know, it's this idea and it's, and I tell him and, and Chris Albrecht gets up from his desk and he's on the 41st floor in Century City. He looks out the window towards the, the ocean and pauses for a minute and turns around and he goes, let's do it. And I'm like, let's do what? And he goes, that, the show you just told me. I go, well, what do you mean let's do it? And he goes, we'll do 10. And Joel goes, yes, that's terrific, yes. And everybody's congratulating everybody. And I'm like, I'm like sweating. I have no idea what we're talking about. And I take the elevator down with Bob, just the two of us. And I go, Bob, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, we, you know, we, you and I better get together and talk about what this is because I, I don't know what we sold and I don't know, I don't know what their expectation is. And Bob looks at me and he goes, Gil, I'm going to be busy for a while. I'm making this movie Contact. So you're kind of on your own. And I said, but, <laughs> but, but Bob, but there is no show. I mean, be, be candid with me, Bob. You, you know, there is no show. And he goes, yeah, you'll, you'll figure it out. And that's how perversions happen. A big part of season one was me telling my own story, how I regained my passion for storytelling. I experienced a two decades long writer's block that started with Bordello and ended pretty much with this podcast. For 20 years, I stopped writing stories and invested all my creative energies into raising my two kids. Well, that included a lot of coaching, soccer, basketball, ultimate frisbee. We ended season one, episode five, with a story about how, when I thought I was a million miles from show business, it was still right there in my face. Ultimate's a very cool sport. It's a combination of football, soccer, and frisbee, and it's entirely self-officiating. One day after a rule dispute on the field, I went home to look up the rule online. And I found a piece of information that, frankly, it shocked the shit out of me. You know who invented Ultimate Frisbee? Joel Silver. Joel Silver. Joel Silver. I shit thee not. See you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler and by Jason Stein. 
Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster. And Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content. Oh, 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 oh,